0: for the reading of Scripture this morning. You'll find that in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 16, as we come to the uh, conclusion of this uh, Gospel account, and verses 9 through 20, the last portion of Mark's Gospel, verses 9 through 20. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene. Out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept, And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. The Apostles' Creed is generally recognized as an authentic and historical statement Representing the Apostles' teachings from Jesus, although not having been personally written or compiled by the Apostles. Uh, as I said, I think you probably know that. Also, we acknowledge that the Apostles' Creed, although uh, doctrinally sound and, and uh, viable as a confession in the uh, historical Church of Christ, is not part of divine inspired or divinely inspired Scripture. We don't say that the Apostles' Creed is part of the Bible. And so um, we know that, and yet we do find it to be valuable, even though we acknowledge that it was not written or compiled by the apostles themselves. Now, that brings us to a point of consideration this morning that is a little bit different than what we normally do when we're expounding through the scriptures, and that is concerning the final verses of the Gospel of Mark in chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. The most significant concern addressing this passage is about the divine inspiration and providential preservation of Holy Scripture. The the question before us is, do verses 9 through 20 of Mark chapter 16 belong in the Bible? Are they a part of the originally inspired and then providentially preserved Holy Scripture? And the reason I mention this is because the textual documentary history of these verses is part of the larger Story of the providential preservation and the compiling of the New Testament canon of Holy Scripture. Uh, what it tells us is that God is working through time and history and that God uses human instrumentality. As a matter of fact, we can acknowledge that even the use of human instrumentality outside of the Bible, as these books of the Bible were compiled after the time that they were written. And so uh, those who were working on compiling the Holy Scriptures into the canon that we refer to, uh, was, that came after the time of the apostles, even though these inspired writings had come through the, the writers of Holy Scripture and had been providentially preserved, had been circulated and copied and kept, and we have documented evidence of that in the extant numbers of, of uh, text and manuscripts that we have. But God used human instrumentality in compiling and bringing these um, scriptures together and excluding others that were false claims to be scripture. And and that's a really rich and very accessible uh, documented history that we have. Now, several of the modern English Bible translations put double brackets around verses 9 through 20. It's very likely that some of you have a Bible that has verses 9 through 20 with double brackets around it. And oftentimes there is a marginal or a study note that's added that says that these verses are uh, questionable. A commonly repeated default uh, explanation goes that these verses are not supported by the older and more reliable Greek manuscripts. And that is a very disputable generalization. And that's a little bit of what I want to talk to you about this, this morning. I think that's unfortunate and I am disputing, not on my own authority, but based upon this, uh, this historical documented process that God has superintended in giving us providentially and keeping for us providentially what we refer to as the, the New Testament uh, canon of Scripture. So to say that these verses are not uh, supported by the older and more reliable manuscripts is just a, a, a misguided generalization that I, I want to take issue with. Uh, for about three generations now, we say uh, a generations about forty years. so you know for between one hundred fifty and, and two hundred years, uh, uh, more specifically about three generations, a school of New Testament critique uh, regarding the text of the New Testament has developed, and it 's come to dominate the academic field of New Testament text reconstruction, and this is known as the eclectic school. Now, I know you probably haven 't heard of that. But what I'm wanting you to see is this is a fairly recent uh, school that approaches the uh, documents of the New Testament and uh, looks at reconstructing the New Testament from the various... uh, uh, text and manuscripts that we have and this particular school relies on th- on three texts really on three manuscripts really and I, I won't go into uh, the issue of that but it, but it's called the eclectic school and and it's been around like I said developing for uh, about 150 years or so now during this time during these three generations or during this 150 or so years uh, to the very present time there have been and continue to be equally credentialed scholars, who defend the Byzantine-majority New Testament text and take issue with the philosophy and the methods of the eclectic school. So you have the the eclectic school that's gained the ascendancy, but there have been those uh, credentialed, qualified, serious scholars. Some of them were actually colleagues with the original uh, developers, uh, the Westcott and Hort, uh, for example. Dr. Scrivener was a a colleague of theirs and disagreed with them and he fell out of favor and he even wrote of his disagreements and his, his writings were sort of suppressed because the West Cotton Hort uh, took the ascendancy and people jumped on board and, and began to really uh, accept and, and follow that particular philosophy and methodology And yet all along, and and not just in these last three generations. As a matter of fact, this morning, going back to these verses in 9 through 20, we go back to even 200 years after the apostles with witnesses to the authenticity of these verses. So all along, the Lord has had his witnesses that have said, wait a minute, don't jump to a hasty conclusion here. Be careful what you say. And so that's what's before us this morning in looking at verses 9 through 20, and uh, I hope that I can do a good job in encouraging you as to why I don't think we should just overlook these verses. Um, I will tell you that I accept these verses as a part of the uh, canon of Scripture and as a part of of the original uh, text of Mark, and I'll explain what I mean by that. And then also that it is verified uh, across uh, time with uh, bona fide uh, scholars and uh, um, those within the history of the Christian church that have a reputation for their um, standing for the truth of the gospel and for the authority of scripture uh, from, as I said, even 200 years after the time of the apostles. We have that, that documented. So in standard ministerial training programs, the eclectic school over the last, you know, three generations has most often been the accepted standards. But what I find very interesting, and which I'm very glad for, over the past 40 years there continues to be a growing influence for the Byzantine majority text that's been significantly aided by technological advances that we've had in that time period. And I say that I'm I'm happy to report that because that's my generation. Uh, I've been in the ministry for about you know, 40 some years now. And when I was in ministerial training, I was also taught that the eclectic school was the standard. And so interestingly enough, as I was studying and, and dealing with this, there were things that unsettled me, and so I began to look further. I looked outside of those accepted standards, and I began began to find uh, materials that were witnessing to uh, a, another consideration, as I mentioned, even those who had worked as colleagues in this particular field. And then going back historically and seeing uh, across uh, history that there was much, much more of a documentary history about the New Testament and its text that were kind of being ignored. Um, and I would give you an analogy or at least a, a parallel example to this. I did not grow up in reformed doctrine. I, I grew up in a gospel-believing church that, that where God visited salvation and it was true to the testimony of the Lord Jesus. But when it came to some of the refiner. Some of the, the refined doctrines uh, regarding the doctrines of grace and particularly regarding uh, the doctrine of election and predestination, uh, I did not grow up in that. Now, when I was in ministerial training, there were those uh, uh, scholars who were um, commended for ministerial training. Uh, one example would be uh, Dr. Warfield, who was one of the last uh, stalwart world-class reformed uh, scholars at Princeton He was the editor of the Princeton Review. He was uh, at Princeton Seminary, and he wrote extensively. One of the most important series of articles he wrote was called The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible. Now, that was very um, highly regarded in my ministerial training, and it was assigned for reading. Well, as I read that um, and was so impressed with the scholarship of Dr. Warfield, I also began to research and find that he wrote other things. He wrote Calvin and Augustine. He wrote the Westminster Assembly and its work, <laughs> and uh, young, zealous uh, ministerial trainee that I was, I read them, <laughs> and I was deeply, deeply impressed, and have always been with Doctor Warfield. Now, what is also interesting as I'll tell you, is that Doctor Warfield embraced the Westcott Hort and the eclectic school of New Testament criticism, and I disagree with him on that. In deepest humility, I, I disagree. But not only that, you've heard of uh, the, the English uh, Victorian preacher C.H. Spurgeon. Well, Spurgeon was very highly regarded, and uh, in my parallel uh, university degree, I, I was in uh, the Fine School of Fine Arts in public speaking, and for my senior project, I did a, a project, a whole semester project on C.H. Spurgeon. Well, Spurgeon preached in Victorian flair, but he preached the gospel And he claimed unequivocally to be committed to the doctrines of grace and to be a Calvinist. So if you read Spurgeon's sermons, you're getting solid, reformed doctrine uh, in terms of the doctrine of salvation. And so these were influences, these parallel influences, that were a part of my ministerial training, but directing me in terms of reformed doctrine and belief where that was frowned upon and even rejected in the institution where I was trained. So I had to go outside of that. I've jokingly told people, now, this is literal. It sounds like a joke. But in my early years, in my 20s, to find Reformed doctrine uh, material, books and pamphlets and the like, I was buying them out of a guy's trunk of his car. I would meet him in a parking lot over on 285 when he was passing through town, making circuits, selling reformed books, because they were not in the Christian bookstores. They were frowned upon and and, and excluded, and people were, you know, against it. And so, seriously, <laughs> things that you and I today would more or less take for granted. And this is, of course, before whoever invented the Internet. <laughs> it was before that, before email, before Internet. And so, I, seriously, I was buying... Uh, Doctrinally reformed, biblically founded, historically um, uh, identified materials out of the trunk of a guy's car. And so when I began to look into this issue about the New Testament text, I realized that there's another part of the story. And it was well documented with credentialed, uh, qualified scholars that just were not being publicized as much. But that's changed and there's been a growing influence of that movement of uh, recognizing and of promoting the Byzantine majority text uh, in terms of consideration for the um, reconstruction of the New Testament text. Now when it comes to verses 9 through 20 of the Gospel of Mark this is what I want you to know. For almost 2,000 years as I said, the earliest witnesses are about 200 years after the apostles to these verses of Mark, okay? So for almost 2,000 years, the trustworthiness of this part of Mark's gospel, verses 9 through 20, is attested by major Greek manuscripts, post-apostolic patristic citations, the, these after-the-apostles church uh, leaders and um, well-known names of Christian uh uh, witness after the apostles, names that you would know, they cite these verses from verses 9 through 20 in their writings and in their preaching. Ancient Bible versions have these verses in their collection. Lectionaries, which were the pulpit Bibles of that time, and there were there were assigned readings for the church calendar through the year, lectionary public readings Assign readings from verses 9 through 20 of the Gospel of Mark. And as I said, qualified New Testament textual scholars who have published thorough reviews answering objections from the doubters and disputers about this text have continued to defend with good reason and with good faith the authenticity and to to, uh, stand against the dismissal or at least the questionable uh, approach to these verses 9 through 20. Now, I might also tell you that there is a similar debate that documented Second uh, Peter. Some of the very same things that were said about this passage in uh, the Gospel of Mark are also said about Second Peter. But once again, through God's providence and with the qualification uh, of well-founded and well-defended uh, scholars and documented testimony and, and evidence... We accept 2 Peter as we should, as in the canon of the New Testament. So this next portion in the notes, I really want our young people to listen to very carefully. Every generation must stand and defend the authenticity of the Bible as the Word of God. Every generation is confronted with those who want to destroy the Bible, to dismiss the Bible, to discredit the Bible. To do away with the Bible for one reason because it's authority. We're hearing a lot about that right now with all these confused social issues and and human identity issues going on. People don't want to hear what the Bible has to say because the Bible speaks authoritatively. It speaks unequivocally. It speaks clearly. And so God used human instrumentality through the agency of the Holy Spirit's superintending, recording the living words of the Holy Scripture. Not only individuals, but also cooperation between divinely directed people supernaturally attended by the Holy Spirit to originate and to preserve the God-breathed writings is documented in the Bible. Prophets and apostles used amanuensis. These were um, like recording secretaries or scribes. Some of the parts of the Bible were dictated to others to write it down. You might be surprised that that Paul and Peter both used recording secretaries as they dictated uh, some of their writings to them as inspired apostles and they were written down by a a secretary or a scribe for them. Prophets and apostles, as I said, use these. There are also collections of scripture collected and edited by more than one author or group. I know that you know the psalms were written by different psalmists and may have been even collaborated on by some in writing them. It may not just been one author that wrote a psalm. It may have been the influence in the, uh, of a group in some of the psalms. We know that Moses and David, of course, wrote most of the psalms, but we have others who are identified for us as having written the psalms and those psalms were then collected by editors or uh, a group. And also the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, we're told while Solomon's influence and primature is there, we're also told that Hezekiah established a commission to gather Proverbs. And so they were not all written by um, Solomon, but were later collected, Solomon's Proverbs and the collection of other Proverbs, into the Holy Bible, superintended by the Holy Spirit, but under the direction of King Hezekiah and uh, his commission. So recognizing these techniques as common to human documentation and publication must not be confused with those intellectually dishonest anti-Bible <laughs> disputers who want to tear the Bible apart. When we say that, that God used these means, and why we even have evidence, and it's identified for us in Scripture itself, that God used these means of collecting, documenting, uh, editing, and uh, publishing, we're saying that that is self-evident. The Bible claims that. And we don't need to in any way try to uh, um, ignore that. We can say, sure, God used those means. He identifies it for us. He tells us he used those means. But that's different than those who want to tear the Bible apart and uh, who want to question uh, its authenticity. And usually behind that, there's a bigger question of denying even the supernatural origin of the Bible saying that it's just a book of myths, that it's a book of legends, that it was drawn together and put together by humans, uh, and that oftentimes it was after the fact that uh, when it comes to prophecies, oh, they wrote that after it happened. The only reason and the only basis they have for saying that is their own prejudice. They don't believe the Bible. And so the fact that God used these means and identifies for us in Scripture that he used these means should be a, a point of encouragement for us. And it allows us to confront those disputers who would deny the authority and the original divine origin of the Holy Scriptures. Now, many otherwise theologically sound Christian ministers and teachers and scholars accept what they've been taught about the New Testament text construction. And so even in the commentaries that I was reading here on Mark, uh, men that I have great regard for and, and uh, certainly bow to their scholarship will, will say that these verses are questionable or uh, they will um, a- accept the um, eclectic school uh, generalization about it. And I'm saying that that just is sad to me because there is far more valid um, witness to these scriptures and we should not just simply... Uh, dismiss them. So, the variations in Mark's gospel, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, can be accounted for. We're not saying there aren't variations here. But like other passages of Scripture, they have variations. The variations here in these verses, 9 through 20, can be accounted for without questioning the validity of this Scripture as being authentic to the original text. And that's what I want to do. I want to give you some uh, accounting and some reason for the variations, but also I want you to know that I believe this scripture is valid and authentic as part of the original text of Mark's gospel. So the first thing is this. Scripture writers did not necessarily start and complete their document in one sitting and may have added, edited, and rewritten what they were working on. So there's no indication, nor should we think, that Mark sat down and wrote all of this in one time. Secondly, scripture writers had input from others by oral traditions, eyewitness accounts, interviews, direct quotations, personal documentation. Again, we find the a witness in scripture itself. Uh, Luke, for example, tells us this is exactly what he was doing. And we have other references and other examples in scripture where there were input from others. There was oral tradition. Sometimes the prophets in the Old Testament preached and later, their sermon was written down in its prophecy. But originally, it was a preached oral word. Sometimes there are oral traditions in terms of uh, uh, carrying on and, and uh, conveying the word of God by oral tradition until it was written down. That shouldn't cause us a trouble. shouldn't cause us a problem. And there were eyewitness accounts. Uh, again, we have those in Scripture who themselves were not the eyewitness to these things, but they got record and the testimony of others who were eyewitnesses to these things. And so they wrote them down. There, there are direct quotes. There's some question about even in the Gospels, some of the things were these direct quotes from Jesus. It's, it's uh, pretty well assumed that Jesus probably spoke in Aramaic, but the, the Gospels are written in Greek. Uh, but you'll find that there is attributed to, from the Gospel writers, direct quotations from Jesus. Um, And then we have, again, interviews and and personal dictation. We have these things witnessed to to us in the Scriptures themselves. And so uh, the fact that there is variety in the way that there was transmission uh, of the Holy Scriptures should not trouble us. Now Mark's gospel is widely accepted as having the Apostle Peter to be the primary source. And I do think that's significant because Mark may have been interrupted and stopped at verse 8 in chapter Sixteen. I, that's what I think happened. I think something interrupted Mark completing the gospel account from his um, uh, um, having Peter, uh, Peter's contribution. And so we're told in Scripture the last reference that we have to Peter is in Acts fifteen in Jerusalem. And of course, you know that persecution began very intently on the Christian believers in Jerusalem. There is no record anywhere in Scripture that Peter ever left Jerusalem or that Peter went to Rome. Peter did not found the church in Rome. Paul founded the church in Rome. There is no Biblical warrant for saying that Peter was involved in the church at Rome. There's every biblical warrant to see Peter recognized in Scripture as one of the leaders in the church in Jerusalem. And it's very likely, based upon what the Lord Jesus said and warned Peter about, the time will come when you're old, you'll be bound and go where you don't want to go. It's very likely that Peter was martyred during Nero's persecution in Jerusalem. And so I think that something interrupted Mark completing his gospel from the contribution of Peter that caused him to stop at verse 8. And then Mark is identified as associated with the Apostle Paul in Christian ministry. I don't, I don't know if you remember that, but very significantly Mark is identified. As a matter of fact, one of the most significant uh, disruptions happened between uh, Paul and Barnabas. If you'll remember, Mark, John Mark was Barnabas's younger cousin. Mark's mother was Barnabas' uh, sister. John Mark was involved in the Christian ministry and the, the development of Christianity early on. It became associated with the Apostle Paul through Barnabas. At one point, young, younger, John Mark caved into some of the hardships of the missionary journey and turned back. It came another time when Paul and Barnabas were going to go out and Uh, Barnabas wanted to take John Mark and the Apostle Paul pitched a fit and said, no, he left us the first time. We're not going to give him another chance. And as a matter of fact, we're told that there was such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that they parted company. And Paul went on and established other missionary journeys without Barnabas. But there is a very wonderful statement in Paul's writing to Timothy when he is writing his pastoral uh, epistles and he's telling Timothy about the work of the ministry and about being a faithful minister as a younger ministerial uh, uh, young man under the, the influence of the Apostle Paul. And when he's writing to Timothy, he says, bring John Mark to me because he's profitable for the ministry. So Mark was associated with the Apostle Paul after whatever interrupted and uh finished his association with the apostle peter as i suggested i think it was probably the persecution and so mark became a a part of the missionary entourage with the apostle paul and guess who else guess who else he became very associated and connected with luke dr luke who wrote the gospel of luke and acts as a matter of fact uh the most identified personal information that we have about John Mark comes from Luke. Luke tells us more about John Mark than anybody else. Uh, More than even Mark tells us about himself. So, I believe in this relationship with the Apostle Paul and especially with a missionary companion, Luke, that Mark finished his gospel account, verses 9 through 20, at a different time And it may have been even with different sources, the Apostle Paul and Luke influencing him in writing the conclusion, verses 9 through 20, at a later time. But I believe it was written by Mark or perhaps co-authored with Mark and with Luke. And the reason why is that linguistic analysis of these verses 9 through 20 shows some vocabulary, grammatical, and syntax differences with the main body of Mark's writing. However, there are remarkable similarities compared with Luke's writing. And next week, when we look more closely at this text, there's some things you'll hear here that are also found in the Gospel of Luke. You could probably read them and pick them up for yourself. Oh, Luke also said that. And so when I found it very interesting that there were those who were disputing the uh, linguistic analysis of, of verses 9 through 20, saying it differs from the main body of Mark's writing, but they didn't look anywhere else. They just said, oh, this doesn't kind of match up with some of Mark's other writing. And yet I started looking at it and started beginning to do some initial linguistic analysis and found, well, guess what? There's some remarkable uh, uh, agreements between these verses and uh, Luke's writing. And that goes to the grammar, the uh, vocabulary, and the syntax, not just to the stories, but actually to the... Uh, nuts and bolts of the language itself. And in the linguistic analysis, there are remarkable similarities in verses 9 through 20 with, uh, with Luke's writing. So let me ask you this. Is the academic dispute over Mark 16 verses 9 through 20 that big of a deal for Christian believers? Is that something you should even care about? I guess there's even a bigger question here, and that is, wouldn't it have been better just to skip over this controversy and not draw attention to it pastor you're upsetting the people they they don't want to know that this is disputed they don't want to hear that you have to defend the nature of scripture and you have to uh go into the uh details of why we can say that we have good faith and we have evidence and we have historical documentation and we have valid scholarship that tell us that this is defended as part of the Word of God. You know, the people in the pew, they don't want to hear that. You're going you're to trouble them by telling them that. Well, I don't view it that way. I believe for Christian believers to have their faith in the divine origin and the providential preservation of Holy Scripture to be strengthened. And that's been my desire this morning. I know there's technical stuff, and I know some of this is like, "Mm, I'm not sure what all that means, and and I do struggle with that a little bit because I don't want you to be unsettled. But I do believe it's my responsibility as a pastor to encourage and to strengthen your faith that in the divine origin and the providential preservation of the Holy Scripture, we can say, this is the Word of God, it's not the Word of men. And what I've tried to do this morning is to at least indicate to you from my position in watching for your souls and for commending to you the Holy Scriptures that this portion of Mark's Gospel, 9 through 20, has every uh, um, credible defense for being accepted by me and by you and historically within the Christian church as the valid word of God. I believe it is my ordained duty to my Lord Jesus Christ and the head of the church to tell you these things and to to encourage you to believe. Did you notice in these verses, we'll come back to it next time, but I mentioned this last week, that what is very significant is there is a theme that carries over from verse 8 on into verses 9 through 20. A very significant theme, and that is believe. Believe! And Jesus rebuked their unbelief. And so, of all things this morning, whether you understand about the eclectic school or the Byzantine majority, I can't even say it Byzantine majority. It sounds like something you would order at a restaurant. I'll have the Byzantine majority. Um, The real point is you can have confidence. And that confidence is the work of faith, it's not a blind faith. Sometimes it's actually going outside of the box of even some of the received and established uh, witnesses. As in the case of election and predestination. I believe all of us have gone outside the box of evangelicalism and said, no, we embrace the whole counsel of God. We believe even the things we don't understand. We believe that God will do what's right. And when the Bible says that God predestines and elects those who will be saved and that He gives them the gift of faith, they cannot save themselves. We have embraced and believed that. And we have done that in humility, not thinking ourselves better than our brothers and sisters who are outside of that box or who are inside the the box of saying, no, no, you know, that wouldn't be fair. We've said, no, it's not about being fair, it's about God being God. Now, we've embraced that, and we've embraced that in in many ways as a minority uh, theologically. And so what I'm saying to you is there is good reason for accepting these verses, verses 9 through 20, as part of the original text of Mark's gospel through the examples that I gave you this morning and to confirm and say, no, this is something that the Holy Spirit would have us believe and look into and learn from so what are we going to learn from these verses you know the holy spirit authorizes these verses as originally inspired and providentially preserved holy scripture written by mark and perhaps co-authored by luke but it completes mark's gospel here and what i want you to consider and we're going to look at this more closely next week in verses 9 through 20 that this is an apostolic epilogue so that This scripture is validated by other scriptures comparing scripture with scripture. There's nothing here that should throw us a curve and say, oh, that's questionable. Now, I know the thing about picking up snakes and drinking poison is going to be at the top of your list. Well, how could that be? Well, we're going to look at scripture. Are these things elsewhere represented or or, or validated? And what do they mean? I know that there is a subculture that has um, falsified these verses. A subculture that says, you know, you take up snakes and you drink, you know, snake venom and all this, and that's how you prove your faith. That is rejected throughout Scripture. Even if these verses were not in the Bible, that would be rejected, that kind of behavior. So, verse 17 does not validate picking up snakes and drinking snake poison. That's a subculture that has violated what Scripture teaches. But what do we have in these verses? We have an apostolic epilogue where Jesus is saying what he had previously told his apostles and what he tells us, his church, that he was a going away into heaven. And going away into heaven, even though we would not see him with our eyes, there would be a greater presence that he would manifest and that we would do greater works than the earthly works that he did. There are greater works than raising the dead. There are greater works than casting out demons. There are greater works than healing the sick. And the greater work is what Jesus identified as a purpose of the gospel, and that is the eternal salvation of souls that goes beyond this world and beyond this life. This is an apostolic epilogue that validates that Jesus commissioned his apostles and through his apostles commissioned his church on earth, the visible church that you and I represent as part of the invisible church of the ongoing work and promise of the great commission of Christ that He is the Savior of the world. And so when we look to these verses next week, that's what I hope that you'll be encouraged about, is that this apostolic epilogue confirms for us that the gospel is continuing to go forward, that Christ is with His church, and that the signs of the apostles validated the greater works that you and I are to be looking to. And that is the work of the soul. God working among us. God changing the heart. God fulfilling his promise of salvation. So we don't try to go back and try to um, reinstitute the signs of the apostles. Any more so than we go back and try to uh, say that we are, that, 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 you know, we are Christ. And I, that's another broad and, and um, continuing error and falsehood that's around today. People who claim that they are deified through Christ, that they're little Christ as becoming divine and having the divine authority and power and claiming immediate, un, unmediated uh, connection with God. That's a false religion. That's a false belief. That is anti-Christian. And what Jesus said, there will come false Christ and anti-Christ And we need to be aware of it. There will come false prophets. There will come false apostles. And so we need to be founded in Scripture and not be led astray by these things. And so this apostolic epilogue confirms for us from other portions of Scripture what it is that is meant by the Great Commission and how it is that we, not claiming these false powers and false authorities, Submit to the divine authority from the Holy Scriptures. Scripture tells us what to believe. Scripture tells us what to do. Scripture is not contradictory. And Scripture is not picked apart by human claims. But rather let's look at the the, um, combined witness that we have from the preservation of the Holy Scriptures. So we'll look more closely at verses 9 through 20 next week. Um, it is based upon the authority of Scripture that we keep this Lord's Supper. Why would we do this? And why do we do it as often as we do? We're given the liberty as identified in Scripture. We're told what the elements were. How do we know historically what the elements that we use in the Lord's Supper were? Because it was on the Passover. We know how the Passover was documented, and we know how the Lord Jesus took two of the elements from the Passover. He took the unleavened bread and he took the wine. He left the other elements go. And with those two elements, he said, These represent my body and my blood of the new covenant. I cannot overly, overly emphasize that.